Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is the Reading Women podcast where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode eight, where we are going to talk about all things Southern literature. Hi, everyone. Hello. Welcome to the Southern Literature Show. So I am a huge fan of Southern literature, but I didn't used to be. I grew up in the South, and growing up, I read a lot of books that weren't set in the South. And for a while, I was on this kick of reading books based in New York City. And then I don't really know what happened. One day, I was just like, I'm sick and tired of reading of the New York City literati. And also, I found that people were very disparaging of Southerners in general, specifically in relation to their education. Um, There's definitely a common belief that people in the South are not as intelligent, especially where I come from, which is near the mountains. And so I finally decided one day, I was like, okay, I just need to read. If this is where I live and this is my place, then I need to read about this place where I live and find out who are the big names in Southern literature and just kind of understand better how they viewed the South and what they said about it as a way to kind of process my own upbringing. So last year I spent most of the time reading Southern literature and I read so much and I read everything and like old things and new things and prize winners and obscure works and kind of did my own directed study of it and just fell in love with it. It's very diverse. There's nothing's the same. No voice is the same. No setting is the same. And depending on which region you pick from, it's a completely different story. And it is now probably my favorite category of, or my favorite genre of books. I'm I'm pretty sure it's a slam dunk winner for that. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, you and your Flannery love. We and it all started with Flannery O'Connor. That's true. It did. It started with Flannery O'Connor. And it was interesting when we were at the Decatur Book Festival a couple of weeks ago. Someone asked Ron Rash if he felt like labeling his books as Southern literature uh, was helpful or hurtful. And he was basically like, nah, it's not hurtful. Like, I don't remember his answer now. I wish I could remember it. I was just so excited. I was hyperventilating and not really paying attention. It's true. If I'm being honest. It's very, very true. <laughs> but he was basically like, there's no other place like it. And he gave a good example of, he said that a lot of times Southern literature is maligned because of all the metaphors that they use and his example was you have to be really smart to come up with a metaphor or at least have some measure of intelligence to come up with metaphors because you're taking two dissimilar things and comparing them to one another and and he of course is much more elegant than I am right now but yeah so that's kind of how I got into it and how I'm here and now I'm proselytizing everybody to read more southern literature yeah, it's very true. It's very it's very interesting how different um, multifaceted it is. And now, now the Heart of the Lonely Hunter. Where is that set? It's I don't think they say. Okay. Did they say? 
I feel like it's set in Georgia. That's what I wanted to say, too. And Mama Day is set on a fictional island on the border of South Carolina and Georgia, like literally on the line. Right. Um, so it's in that area, and I moved down from um, southern Ohio to the south. So it's very interesting to see the different southern cultures as you go around. Oh, yeah. So it and is it's very diverse. Yeah, and it's not the same wherever you go. That's like the, well, Mama Day has more of a coastal feel, whereas I feel like the Heart is a Lonely Hunter is more of a, uh, like, just like your typical city, medium-sized city in the South, um, which is different from if you read books set in the mountains. Like, for example, if you read A Death in the Family by James Agee or something like that, it there's just different, because of the topography, it changes the plot and how the plot works. And it's interesting how a lot of different cultures, they're, they're that those circle diagrams, how they overlap, that kind of mm-hmm. idea. So like you have uh, Appalachian writing and then you have Southern Appalachian writing. When those are, those are different, but they're related and they can relate on different levels. And then you have like New Orleans and swamp writing and you have, you know, Florida swamp writing and, you know, so on and so forth. It's just so fascinating. Yeah, it's great. One of my favorite descriptions of the the subtle differences in the cultures is in the book Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And it's a it's non well, it's creative nonfiction. But he talks about how people in Savannah didn't like people in Charleston and vice versa. And then he lists like all of these little minuscule differences between the two. And I love that passage because I'm like, yep. That's it. There's just like these little teeny tiny things that separate them, even though they have a lot of common denominators. So, yeah, it's it's a lot wider and a lot richer than you would think. And even now, Josh is in a class where he's studying borderlands literature, which is southern states near the uh, near the Gulf of Mexico. And that that itself is a whole different type of writing and different problems and different things to deal with. So. There's lots there, and I'm happy to provide recommendations if anyone's (laughs) looking for a specific region or a specific topic. Just send me an email or message me or whatever, and I'm happy to give those recommendations. Yes, you have a plethora of them, and you're winning me over. Yes. Slowly but surely. Just like you won me over to the fantasy side, I'm winning you over to the southern literature side. Well, that's why I like Mama Day. See what I did there? Nice segue. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Took, took a while for that one. Uh, because it has magical realism in it. And uh, it's just gorgeous. And it's a beautiful piece of Southern literature. And since I live in South Carolina, it's nice to see, like, oh, I know where that is. So uh, so magical realism. I have a definition here that I found on this lovely resource we're going to put in our show notes that is from Random House for High School Teachers. Love it. It has all kinds of discussion questions, which we some of them will be on our Goodreads group, uh, just FYI. But it says that Mama Day employs the literary technique called magical realism, in which elements of dreams, fairy tales, and mythology are combined with recognizable everyday reality. Kendra's definition is fantasy light. Um, so like that Pepsi One stuff, but just for literature and fantasy. So you can see different fantastical elements and particularly uh, folklore, like American folklore, which is basically American fairy tales, 
are really heavily in Mama Day. Um, we could talk about a lot of different things in this book, but we mainly want to talk about the setting or the island of Willow Springs, which is set. What? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to add that, and part of the magical realism and part of the setting, I think, in this book is when you read it, it starts with the map and then with the family tree. And then that historical document. So I feel like those elements, is yours the same way? Yeah. Yeah, so it really sets it up as a fairy tale in a way because it's put, putting you in a place and situating you in a family and in a time period very specifically. And the island of Willow Springs is an island to itself, is an actual character in the novel. And there's even a third person or maybe a first person chorus narrative something or other and it's really weird and you realize that the island itself is kind of speaking um, because it is such a magical place Um, and since it's on the border both Georgia and South Carolina legally think it belongs to the other state so it's non-existent so the idea is that there is a black culture living in isolation untouched by white racism and sometimes the bridge that goes in between the island and the mainland gets washed away um, especially during times of trouble the island kind of does it itself almost it's implied but I'm going to it starts with Sapphira Wade who convinced her master to give the island to his slaves when all the slaves were freed after the war and she bore him seven sons and on the seventh day, or seventh son, she rested. And that's the line that Mama Day comes from. Um, and just a little explanation of the family. I know there's a lot of explanation. Sorry, guys. But Mama Day and her sister Abigail, and they had a third sister. And then Abigail had a daughter. And then Coco, who is pretty much the protagonist of the novel, um, she is the last living day. And she is the granddaughter of Abigail, great niece of Mama Day. And so it's a very matriarchal culture and she's raised by two women. So I want to read a second uh, passage here. Here we go. Uh, Willow Springs. Everybody knows, but nobody talks about the legend of Sapphira Wade, a true countrywoman, satin black, biscuit cream, red as Georgia clay, depending upon which of us takes a mind to her. She could walk through lightning storm without being touched, grab a bolt of lightning in the palm of her hand, use the heat of lightning to start the kindling going under her medicine pot, depending upon which of us takes a mind to her. She turned the moon into salve and the stars into swaddling cloth and healed the wounds of every creature walking up on two or down on four. It ain't about right or wrong, tooth or lies. It's about the slave woman who brought a whole new meaning to both them words. Soon as you cross over here from beyond the bridge... And it keeps going in this beautiful, repetitive language. And she goes on to describe uh, the history of the island and Sapphira Wade. And there, in the north part of the island is called the Other Place. And that's like their burial ground. Um, so our first real topic about this is um, the two different settings. So Coco moves from uh, Willow Springs to New York and meets a man named George. And she ends up marrying him. And now George is a black man who is an orphan. Um, grew up with no family or heritage, and um, eventually Coco brings him back to the island, and they have to face um, pretty much Coco's heritage, which she has been running from, um, her family, those kind of things. So 
they have to try to figure out, just deal with that. And I feel like these are really common themes, even now in the South. The place, like place is this thing where you live and you have roots. And Eudora Welty has a really amazing essay about this. But even when I met Josh, like we dated for a while, but he wasn't really approved until I took him home to where I lived, you know, so I feel like these themes are really common themes in Southern, or themes you will often see in Southern literature, place and bringing an outsider to home as a way to kind of assimilate him into your culture. I think that's also a universal theme because you have like memoirs like Angela Palm's memoir, Riverine, which won the Grey Wolf nonfiction prize, is all about her coming to terms where she came from and bringing her guy home. And I think that's why we can all relate to the story like this. Exactly. But this story in particular, because of the magical realism, it has the spirituality of Willow Springs and the faith and the the magic, for lack of a better term there, versus New York, which, you know, is we don't need faith. It's very modern, I guess, kind of thing. So it's like the new New York, you know, versus the old world, which is like Willow Springs, white culture, um, I guess more white culture, which was also interesting because uh, Gloria Naylor makes a big deal about talking about the polyglot, multicultural nature of New York. But at the same time, George is heavily influenced by the white culture there. And that's kind of what she's getting at is there's this black isolated culture with the heritage. And then George has no heritage and he's among all these different peoples and languages but he's most affected by um, a lot of racism and uh, how he has to handle that. It's a to- they came from totally different worlds, even. Yeah, and I think at the beginning of the book, they really, she really does a good job of setting up the the difference between New York and how automated it is, and just the cultural differences and how just how different it, Coco, how she kind of struggles to between like her new life and her old life and how to assimilate those. So it, it comes to a point when um, Coco and George return. Um, Mama Day is kind of like a medicine woman, but there is another woman on the island who practices voodoo, which is a different um, form of magic, again, lack of a bit of a term, um, than hers. And, um, what happens is that Ruby, the woman who practices voodoo, curses Coco for whatever despiteful reason. And so Coco becomes very sick and she's very ill and she can't escape the sickness. And George freaks out because he's a very practical man and he doesn't believe in this magic at all. And that's a big thing between him and the rest of the day women is he will not believe in this part of their life it's a great deal part of their life and he will refuses to believe in it and coco keeps getting sick so what happens is um mama day comes up to him and she asks for his hands and not like actually like to chop them off or anything but like she takes his hand and hers and it's like you want to make coco better you need to give me your hands basically she's asking him to believe and he calls her a crazy woman and yells at her and finally she's like do you want to fix her and he's like yes she's then then go to the chicken coop put your hands underneath the nest and bring me whatever you find there and so the second part i'm going to read for you guys is um 
this bit where he's in the chicken coop and there's like this demon hen trying to like, you know, pick his eyes out. He says, uh, there was nothing there except for my gouged and bleeding hands. Bring me straight back whatever you find. But there was nothing to bring her. Bring me straight back whatever you find. Could it be that she wanted nothing but my hands? And on the next page, it says, there was nothing that old woman could do with a pair of empty hands. I was sitting in a chicken coop covered with feathers, straw, manure, and blood. And why? I looked around me again. I and I kept laughing until it started to hurt. Why? I brought both palms up, the bruised fingers clenched inward, all of this wasted effort. When these were my hands, there was no way I was going to let, let you go. And the very, um, he's a narrator, George, and his last two lines are, I didn't feel anything after my heart burst. As my bleeding hand slid gently down your arm, there was total peace. So he died. And um, this perplexed, this ending perplexed me. And I really just researching it finally and understanding that she was asking him to believe, to have faith, to move beyond the sterile cynicism of the modern world and just to have faith in this thing that his, he had lost, like he lost his heritage, like just to believe in this thing. And he didn't, and he did have a heart condition, right? And it talks about it through the thing, through the, um, the novel. And so you're always wondering, is this magic real? And that's part of magical realism. But um, he did not believe and he did not trust Mama Day that he could help Coco. And so she ended up, um, he died. And so sad. I was so confused by this ending. (laughs) I remember we came to class discussion and everyone's like, what on earth did we just read? And one of the secrets that Abigail and Mamba Day hold is that they've all loved a man, and whenever a day woman loves a man, that man dies. Which is an interesting thing to think about. We probably don't have time to discuss like, it now, but... I know. There's so much going on with this book. And you're like, but why Why is that? Why, why did that happen? And so... Coco gets better and she comes to term with this and she goes to the other place where her ancestors are buried. And, um, it's like the Island speaks to her and she herself believes in the Island in the end, but her husband could not. Um, so I really appreciate the call to faith that this book is basically in a sense. And it's also an appreciation of heritage and um, family and so many other things going on, but that's an oversimplification, obviously. I mean, it's beautiful and it's multifaceted and there's so many things going on and you don't really, well, I didn't really feel like I understood what was going on half the time, but you don't care really because you just get swept up into this world that she's created and it all makes sense and it's all beautiful and you just know it's going to turn out okay somehow. The writing, the writing is so beautiful. Like the first time you read it, you're just distracted by how gorgeous as it is and you want to know what happens. And the second time you go through, you actually, I think, better piece things together. Um, so it definitely holds up to multiple, multiple readings. Well, and I think that's the thing. I need to reread it. I've only read it once. And I haven't revisited it, and I should. It's it's one of my number like my go to recs for everyone in the world. This is one of them. We should Definitely. point out too at this point that Gloria Naylor has written other books, and George 
apparently, I've not read it, but is the son of one of the women mentioned in her other novel, The Women of Brewster Place. Oh. Yep. Because I knew, like, I read that they were all in the same universe, but I didn't realize that they were all, like, connected loosely. Like, that, that isn't, I have to go find it now. Yeah, I, th- I don't know how much overlap there is, but apparently characters are borrowed or referenced vaguely in each one. So I wonder what it would be like to read The Women of Brewster Place and get George's backstory before rereading Mama Day. Yeah, because that, that just ending, that kills you every time. It's just like... It's so oh, sad. Goodness. And it's like, dude. Oh, it's so sad. What'd you do? Well. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So before we get too depressed thinking about this, I think we can move on to our... Our affiliate of the day. Um, so today we're going to talk about Audible. Um, and one of the ways, if you love reading women, if you'd like to support us, you can check out our link in the show notes to Audible. And um, we love audiobooks, obviously. I mean, every other book we talk about, we listen to rather than reading. Um, but it really is a great way, if you're doing stuff, raking the leaves, dishes, whatever you do. Like when I get ready and have my morning cup of tea and toast, I'm always listening to, to something. So, Or if you're a crazy person like me who always has some sort of craft project or another going on. You know that is true. That is true. You know, you know, everyone, listeners to the Reading Women, this woman made all of, almost all of her own wedding decorations. Yep. Out of paper. Yep. Anyway, Audible is wonderful. And recently, uh, my husband and I both read To the Bright Edge of the Wood by Eowyn Ivy. And my husband says that he would listen to Eowyn Ivy write about the mating rituals of dung beetles, and he would <laughs> still love it to pieces. So, <laughs> no higher praise from the House of Winchester. I just finished Euphoria by Lily King on audio, and it was surprisingly good. It's one of those books that I've, well, you know this, but I've seen it basically everywhere I've gone in the last month, and finally I broke down and bought it. And sometimes it's not a good sign if a book is everywhere, but this one was actually pretty good. My review's on Goodreads. Y'all can go read it if you want to. That is Audible, and you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial with our link in our show notes. Um, code is something like The Reading Woman. And if you do that, let us know. Let you let us know what you end up picking out, and we'd love to talk about it with you. Or if you're not sure about audiobooks and you want a recommendation, we have lots of recommendations. Oh yes. Yes. Okay, so next we're going to talk about The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers. And I am going to try to summarize this book. It is not easy to summarize, but I'm going to try. It's set in a small Georgia town in the 1930s. It starts at John Singer, who is a deaf mute man who's renting a room from the Kelly family. And the Kellys have a daughter named Mick, who is kind of a tomboy, but she loves music. So this, so it starts there, and... The way I like to think of this book is, and it's a, kind of an overused trope, but as a tapestry. Like, if any book is a tapestry, this one is it. Because all of, the char- all of the characters are connected to each other in some way. Then it follows their relationship, and then other characters are introduced into the plot, which I will talk about in a minute. But the whole plot revolves around this man, John Singer, and how he affects the lives of these people. 
there's different struggles and different things that happen to the characters throughout the book. And it really focuses not so much on what happens, but how they interact with each other. And that's part of the reason why I love this book so much. Like, oh my goodness, I just love this book so much. Yeah, so that's kind of the basic high overview of the, the story. As far as main characters, as I said, there's John Singer, who boards from the Kellys, and then Mick. And then there's another character we're introduced to, Jake Blunt, and he is kind of a wanderer. He just travels from place to place, but he is a socialist. So he goes from place to place getting odd jobs, but in those jobs he tries to start up workers' revolts and get people introduced to socialist ideas and onto his side and kind of campaigning for fair rights and wages. But he generally just causes trouble everywhere he goes. We're also introduced to a doctor, Dr. Benedict Copeland, and he is an African-American doctor who's practicing medicine in this area. As he goes from house to house, he's trying to help race relations in the neighborhood because as we mentioned it's 1930s Georgia and so he's not just tending to people's physical ailments he's trying to help heal society as it were and then the last main character that we're introduced to is Biff Brannon and he owns the cafe in town and as the cafe owner he basically sees everything that goes in and out of the town because it's one of the the only or one of the only restaurants in the town so a lot of people come in there regularly and he kind of serves as a like the philosopher he kind of takes in information and tries to assimilate and make sense of it so those are kind of the main characters and there's not really one main character in the book so that's why it's kind of important I think to just kind of explain who are the main players as far as the title goes it actually comes from a poem by William Sharp and the lines are but my heart is a lonely hunter that hunts on a lonely hill and this kind of sets the tone for the whole book because everyone in some way is missing something and looking for something that they didn't And sometimes they don't really know what they're looking for. It's just more like this kind of primal urge that they're looking for something. I didn't know that about the title. I've been wondering about that. I don't remember if it's in the... Hold on, I have my copy right here. Nope, it's not mentioned in the book. You know, sometimes they put them at the beginning. This book, though, is... Well, most critics agree that this is the most autobiographical book of McCullers and do you know how old she was when she wrote this probably disgustingly young yeah she was 23 oh it's like it's like Zadie Smith I know it kind of makes you angry a little bit (laughs) because this does not seem like a first novel the first no there's no way it's just it's intelligent and it's mature and her observations about life and society are mind freaking blowing like and most of the characters are 
older dudes, like at least middle aged to older yes guys. Not, I mean, there's Mick, but she's the only girl main character out of those five. Five, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, and they say that Mick is based off of McCullers. McCullers, um, well, and this is kind of a good segue. So, music is a dominant theme in the book. And McCullers herself wanted to go to Juilliard and study piano, but she she didn't make it in. Um, I don't remember why. I looked it up, but I don't remember. So anyway, she didn't. She kind of had poor health her whole life, so she didn't make it into Juilliard. So when she didn't, obviously music was important to her. And it starts out with John Singer. Obviously, his name is John Singer, and. He's deaf and mute, but everyone come. All of these characters, all the other four characters that I mentioned, somehow, some way, are introduced to him, and then they all start coming to him to talk, which is amazing because it's like he's he can't speak and he can't hear them, and yet they come to him, and he quietly listens to what their their problems and these things they're trying to sort out, and all of them are comforted by the fact that. He doesn't critique them. He doesn't, you know, he can't say anything back. And somehow having someone listening and just being able to fill their guts to him essentially is healing. But he's having his own problems, which we will talk about a little bit later. McCullers in an interview said that, described this book as a fugue, which is a, oh, and I can't remember now. It's like an old type of, of, musical piece you can tell I'm not a musician you can very clearly tell <laughs> it's certain, but, it has a certain structure to it right right and so the structure is a as she described a three-part fugue and she explained that it is quote like a voice in a fugue each one of the main characters has an entity in himself but his personality takes on a new richness when contrasted and woven in with the other characters in the book and that is the best way to describe this book because you're slowly introduced to all of these characters and as it builds, it's like a symphony. Like, it gets louder and louder and the it becomes more complete and you have a more clear understanding. And in this is, like, Mick trying... She's interested in becoming a musician and she makes her own ukulele and she makes music and her brother has a harmonica. And even how she describes it, um, one of my most favorite quotes, and I think I read it last time, but I'm going to read it again. Um, she says at one part, the whole world was this symphony and there was not enough of her to listen. And I just think it's so beautiful. Like, I just love the descriptions. And so the story in and of itself is musical. And the way she writes and how she tells the story it could be complicated, but it's not. She's such a master of what she does that it is just not complicated at all. It all fits together really well. The structure is just, like, it's, it's very hard to have that many main characters. Yeah. But they're all pretty balanced, and it's all kind of all kind of move around singer, sort of like the sun and, like, planets. And it's, it's so interesting to see, usually at the end, and that's what how I felt when I first read this because I'm one of those people who always wonders about how, 
chance encounters and the people we meet and how it how we affect them and how they affect us and just all that that's some so this book I feel like very masterfully shows that how you may think you're isolated and that's another theme of the book which I'm not going to go into at this point but every character is isolated in their own way but and they all believe that they're isolated and in a lot of ways they are logistically very isolated but you, as the reader, can see that they're not. They're all intertwined and connected and involved in each other's lives in ways that they don't even know or understand. That's incredibly sad. And it's like they can't open it up enough to see that each person that they come in contact with, because they all come in contact with each other at some point, that they don't, they, they don't relate to that isolation that the other person has. Yeah. Except for Singer, which they don't really view him as isolated. Right. And it's interesting that the person that they're all sharing with can't respond back and can't, like, it's a one-way conversation. So it makes you wonder, like, had they talked to somebody else, would it have changed? Like, would they have been able to help each other? Because they all have tragic things happen to them. For example, Mick's parents are very poor, so she has to quit school and go to work. And then Jake ends up being, I don't remember what happens to him. He gets in a fight and he gets in trouble and he ends up leaving town and heading north. The doctor, he gets, he's really old and he ends up having to leave his practice and leave the city and leave his patients and go somewhere else. And then Biff, uh, his wife ends up dying and so he's actually alone. So all and in all of this, they don't really they're unable to help each other because of their isolation. Which brings us to the end. Have we already mentioned that this episode has spoilers? Have we said that already? It has spoilers, everyone. This episode has spoilers. (laughs) You've been warned. The end of the book happens in the third part. So we're introduced to the beginning that Singer has been roommate with another deaf mute man for 10 years. And his roommate Spiros becomes sicker and he has to go to a hospital to live and this like crushes Singer because like this is his one friend so it's and so it's also important to note that even though Singer has all these people coming and visiting him he doesn't feel a connection with them the way that they feel with him so eventually Singer is driven by this intense loneliness and he goes to visit his friend one day and finds out that Spiros has died. And so after that, Singer decides that he's going to kill himself, and he does. He ends up committing suicide. And everyone is, all of the people that he's been talking to are confused by this, and they all react in a different way. Jake, the socialist, gets angry because he's he's like, this person that I confided in and shared all these secrets with, like, why would he up and die on me? And then Mick, she feels kind of lost because she's decided to quit school and she has regrets about it. And she says at one point, if she could, if only she could tell him about this, then it would be better. So you kind of feel like that part of how she processed what was going on in her life was by talking to him. The um, 
after Singer dies, the doctor ends up so the doctor ends up moving out to the country with his family where he's going to live on this farm and work the farm the whole day. And then the book ends from Biff's perspective. And this is why I believe he's kind of the one who makes sense of the plot and what's going on. And he works through the night. I think it's a 24-hour diner or pretty close to 24 hours. So he has a lot of time to sit and think and watch. After he dies, he's in the diner. And this is on almost, this is the page before the last one. He says, the riddle. The question that had taken root in him and would not let him rest. The puzzle of Singer and the rest of them. More than a year had gone by since it started. More than a year since Blunt had hung around the place on his first long drunk and seen the mute for the first time. Since Mick had begun to follow him in and out. And now for a month Singer had been dead and buried. And the riddle was still in him so he could not be tranquil. There was something not natural about it, something like an ugly joke. When he thought of it, he felt uneasy and in some unknown way afraid. And then, which I feel like very succinctly summarizes what's going on in this book and how people are thinking about Singer. And then he goes on to talk more about some of the things that had happened in the funeral he said, yeah, and so he's talking about the funeral and all the people who came, and he says about the people who were at the funeral, God knows where they came from or why they were there. So it just kind of sh- shows, like, the far reach of this man who could not communicate with people and just kind of how he affected them. I think Singer, though, is also, like, this is sounding board for all of them because they all react so differently, and they're all very selfish in their relationships with him. They, like, emotionally unburden themselves onto him but because he can't speak he can't do the same with other people like all of this sadness is going into him and it can't go anywhere and even you know Spiros his other deaf mute friend is a horrible person to him Um, and you're wondering like why they're friends and in the end it's just like they didn't really know him at all even though they talked to him a ton they didn't listen so they couldn't Right, and he couldn't hear them, so it's not like, so he was even isolated from their own problems. But there's one point in the story where, when Mick is trying to decide whether or not she should get a job and quit school, where she thinks of when she was telling Singer about her problem, and he nodded, and she took that as a sign that she should quit school and she should get a job. So they put a lot of weight in what he says, even though... He really can't process or understand what they're saying. I think that's about it. Yeah. It's a really sad note to end on. Both these books have a lot going on, and they're so... Yeah, I mean, they're... But I think that's part of the reason why I love Southern literature. Is It is really sad, but there's a lot of sadness in the world. Like, there really is. And these stories are a way to kind of help you think through it and to kind of process these things and it doesn't hide from it and that's one thing Slannery talks about is I mean she talks a lot about how people saying her stories are bizarre and weird and they are but at the same time she's like I'm just telling the truth of what I see in the world so this book I'd heard about it for a really long time before I'd read it and it definitely lives up to all the hype and is definitely a book that you should read and 
is my book that I recommend to everybody. Next to Salvage the Bones, it is the one book that I recommend to everybody. Salvage the Bones always remains number one in our hearts, man. You know, I was <sighs> talking to my sister the other day, and she listens to the podcast, and she was like, y'all repeat yourself a lot. <laughs> She's like, you talk about the same books all the time, and I'm like, because we love them. <laughs> It's true. It's true. It's true. And it's true. When you guys, I you know, go out when everyone has read "Salvage the Bones," then we'll stop. <laughs> right. Exactly. We have a few more uh, billion people to go, so we might be waiting a while. But you know, one, we'll make it one person at a time. Well, um, if you this is the end of our podcast, and if you love the reading women, it would be so amazing if you could just spend two minutes in the iTunes store and review us, rate and review us. Um, and that would be amazing. It helps other people find us. It helps us get the word out there and we would greatly appreciate it. And we just might start giving shout outs if, when people start reviewing us. Yeah. I think that's a thing now. We'll make it a thing. We'll make it it's a thing. thing. It's a if thing you now. review us, we'll give you a shout out. <laughs> and we will tell you how much we love you and appreciate you and all that. Uh, join us next month when we'll be talking about our favorite graphic novels and comics. Ooh, I'm excited about this one. Yes. We're super excited. We've been praying for a while because we wanted to make sure that we had a nice selection. So be sure to tune in in October. Wow. And obviously there are lots of things in this book, these books that we could have talked about more, but we just don't have time. So if there's anything you want to talk about, Go to our Goodreads page and start a conversation, and we would be more than happy to talk to you about themes or quotes or whatever in any of these books. And you can find me, Autumn Privet, on Twitter and Instagram and Litzy and all the places at Autumn Privet. And you can find Kendra at all the places <laughs> at KD Winchester. And that's it. Thanks for listening to the Reading Women Podcast. We will see you next month. Bye. Bye.